now to a mountaineer on a mission. In the next three years, Australian Ali Pepper has her sights set on climbing 14 of the world's highest mountains without supplementary oxygen. She's already completed two in the last couple of months. Ellie Pepper credits time doing a technical mountaineering course in New Zealand over 20 years ago with changing the direction of her life and contributing to her addiction to thin air. She experienced a setback in her guiding business and mountain climbing a couple of years ago. The debilitating symptoms of early-onset menopause had her fearing her career in the mountains could be over, but treatment has her back on track. She's with us from Hazelbrook in the Blue Mountains on the western outskirts of Sydney. Kia ora, Ellie. I can say that because I know your mum's a Kiwi. Yes, kia ora, Catherine. How are you today? I'm good. So you grew up in the Blue Mountains, but you weren't necessarily a, a climber when you were younger. No, I wasn't a climber. I grew up in Australia's largest climbing area. Uh, I had no idea what rock climbing was. So, yeah, I didn't find out about rock climbing until I was 23. And what happened? (laughs) So I found myself on a bit of a journey. I actually failed at high school, my HSC. I didn't want to continue studying and go to university. I was... uh, you know, traveling around in a van, having a lot of different casual jobs and things. And I found myself in India uh, and Nepal in the Himalaya uh, on a spiritual quest to, to discover who I was. And as I was journeying around uh, looking for this sense of purpose outside myself, uh I I had a bit of a low self-esteem, I guess, because I didn't have a clear direction in my life at the time. And I came home and uh, I decided it was time to start a career. And I walked into my local TAFE, which is similar to Polytech in, in New Zealand. I looked at all of the brochures and I was a hippie at the time. So I read a brochure wrong. I read a brochure that said outdoor recreation in my mind. <laughs> and and that was a outdoor that was an outdoor recreation course. Now I loved the outdoors and I wanted to recreate myself. So I picked that up and I said, I will join this course, please. Uh, and that's the first time that I found out that there was rock climbing, canyoning and all these other amazing uh, outdoor sports in the places I grew up. Look, it should be recreation, the outdoors, shouldn't it? But its contemporary yeah. meaning generally means the things you just referred to. So was, <laughs> yeah. it, was it a fairly, you know, was it like a blinding light when you, when you started getting involved in these activities? You suddenly found your thing. Yeah, it literally was. I I never had the opportunity at high school back then in 92 is when I finished my high school, year 12. So never had that opportunity in high school to do any of those types of activities up here. And and maybe if I had the opportunity, I would have, uh, you know, got started a little earlier. Uh, But yeah, so once I began doing those things, what I realized was I was really good at it. That was one thing. I, I had no idea, but I was really good at it. And I started to work 
at the Australian School of Mountaineering as an instructor. Uh, and that and that also helped build my self-esteem, you know, look, guiding other people uh, in these activities and adventures that, that I absolutely loved is, is what built my self-esteem again. Were these some of the key components, self-esteem, a sense of purpose, working with others maybe? What, what, what would you say were the components? Yeah, I think the... I think all of those things, like for me at the time, it was they were key building blocks in terms of my career and why I fell in love with adventure. Uh, exactly right. I I really enjoy guiding. It gave my it gave me a sense of purpose in my life uh, to share those activities with other people. And in saying that, that's how I came to do a course in New Zealand. So one of my uh, instructors on my outdoor leadership uh, certificate uh, said to me, you know, you're really good at this stuff. (laughs) Do you want to come on a 10-day technical mountaineering course in New Zealand with me and see if you enjoy that? And I thought, yeah, that sounds amazing. Uh, what a wonderful opportunity. And uh, once I stepped onto the snow, the glacier up at um, close to Mount Cook there from the plane, I knew, wow, like this is this is something completely different and just I I just fell in love with it. It really it really just became my passion, to be honest, in that moment. Uh, and those 10 days up there in that hut, Kelman hut on the Tasman, top of the Tasman glacier, uh, really did change my life. You also keep saying yes. And there was another yes not long after that leadership course um, that started, took you off, I think, to Argentina. Can you explain? Yeah. So as I was finishing um, my my outdoor leadership course, uh, a couple of the instructors that were working at the Australian School of Mountaineering, they said to me, look, there's this mountain in Argentina. It's called Aconcagua. It's almost 7,000 metres and we want to, to guide it. Now, we're going to go to New Zealand <laughs> and climb. <laughs> That's what they said. We're going to go to New Zealand and climb for the year. However, while we're away, if you can sell uh, enough places on this expedition, you can come for free. And I said, challenge accepted. Uh, I said, tell me all about this mountain, what I should be telling people, because I have no idea about it. But what should I be telling people, you know, to get people excited about coming on this expedition with us? And, uh, yeah, so so Jack, who, who was the one who'd been there before, uh, gave me a bit of a brief about it, and I managed to sell eleven places on this uh, expedition, which meant I was able to go. And uh, at the end of my outdoor leadership, uh, I had a final hike that was an assessment, and I said to the teachers, "Can I please miss it because I've got this opportunity to go to Argentina 
and and guide on a 7,000 meter mountain. And they said, yes, you can miss your final hike, but you need to do a trip report for this climb you're about to do as your, you know, final hike trip report. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. And so off I went. And yeah, so what I did learn was that I was strong at high altitude and that I could not, I, I could look after other people. So that was a bit of a shock to me. Uh, not only could I look after myself, but I could also look after other people on the summer day. And uh, I became addicted to thin air. That became your career then. But the goal you set yourself is something else again. And just explain to people uh, the options for climbing, the options for summiting some of these big mountains uh, with and without oxygen. For most, oxygen is the sensible way to go. Um, How do you cope in thin air and explain your decision to not use supplemental oxygen on this latest series of challenges? Yeah, so I think that the thing is, I'll just go back to 2007 when I first went to an 8,000 metre peak in Tibet. Uh, the name of that mountain is Cho Oyu. Uh, it's around 8,200 metres. And I went there with a climbing partner, a friend of mine who was also a guide here in the Blue Mountains. And Unfortunately, he got some frost nip on his toes and he wasn't able to go to the summit. So he he was okay though, but but he he wasn't able to continue up. So he stayed in the base camp and I decided to climb alone. Now, back then, using oxygen was not a norm I, I'll just say not many mountaineers did it so I had spent like around three years at that time climbing I lived in South America I climbed and guided in the Andes and I honestly didn't even think about using oxygen on that mountain because yes on some expeditions where there were guided uh companies they were their clients were using uh for example like adventure consultants uh their clients were using oxygen the guys were using oxygen to make it safer but coming from just a background of mountaineering myself and guiding it just wasn't an option for me so I headed off uh on my own and I I summited the mountain alone. The The day I went to the summit, there was no one else that went up to the summit. And I came back again. Uh, the whole of the base camp didn't believe that I did it. So they, you know, the Sherpas and the Tibetans ran and got my camera when I got back to, to check because they didn't believe me. But <laughs> but I had I had made it. And that was a turning point for me because I I realized, wow, like I can do this. Now, the difference between climbing with and without oxygen, very simply put, is that the reason why not many people do it is it's around 10 times harder. 
there's a third of the oxygen in the air up there. Your body uses a third of its energy just in regulating your temperature. So it's uh, 10 times easier to get hypothermia. And uh, it's, it's obviously a very difficult endeavor. And that's why people use oxygen because it's safer, it's warmer, uh, and it's much easier. Safer? Is it safer with respect to altitude sickness, uh, which of course can lead to fatality, uh, high altitude pulmonary edema, um, for example? Does it reduce your risk of that also taking oxygen? Yeah, of course. Of course it does. Uh, the risk of like that, I mean, there is one risk, the, the one risk that has occurred um, occasionally, I guess, on, on Everest is that when there's a lot of people going in one summit window, that the waiting uh, people have run out of oxygen up there. So that, so that's a risk because uh, they've been using it from a lower height, so they're not acclimatised to that height. And if they run out, then they're in big, big problem. Yeah. And, and that's that's why they get the cerebral edema or pulmonary edema. Uh, for me, what's more important is that I need to acclimatise to higher. Uh, so, so that's why when people you know, use oxygen, they can do a lot faster ascent because they don't need to acclimatise their body. To... So you're going to have to go up and retreat back to the camp below. Uh, is that the way you build up an advance of a summer? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. OK. So exactly. let's talk about Everest. Um, Lydia Brady, of course, the, the Kiwi, um, summiting it without supplemental oxygen. Uh, she's told her story. Uh, you got to a height on Everest without the highest altitude, I think, of any Australian woman. woman. Did, yeah. yeah. So did you then turn back? Like, what would have been the situations where you've said no, no further? Yeah. So I, I, I on May twenty fourth this year, I attempted Everest um, without oxygen, and yes, I've summited it with oxygen twenty eleven. Uh, and it's a completely different, <laughs> a completely different climb without it. And hats off to Lydia, of course. She's like, I've uh, always admired her and um, she's amazing. So <laughs> when I was climbing, we had a weather forecast that this particular day, I didn't actually get there to until quite late in the season because I was not on another mountain before then, but when I got to Everest, I, I arrived at the base camp and I went up straight up the mountain that night. And then when I uh, was climbing on the the night going towards the summit of the 24th, uh, you first climb up a face and it's fairly sheltered from the wind that comes across from Tibet. And, uh, of course, it was cold. But the other thing that happened that wasn't forecast was it was snowing uh, very in, during the night. So I was coming up that uh, face there, protected from the wind. But as I as I got onto the ridge that goes to the south summit, the wind from uh, Tibet, yeah, it just came. 
straight across that ridge and it was very, very cold. And so I hit the ridge, the wind as I as I got onto the ridge and there's a place on the ridge that's called the balcony. And it's basically like the first sort of flat spot that uh, you you reach at 8,450 metres that you can sort of stop. So many people stop there to change their oxygen bottles. And uh, once I got there, I just remember, because I don't remember a lot, to be honest, but I got there and uh, it was very windy and I sat down uh, because it was flat and I've been going that whole time uh, up the face to, and I wanted to have a bit of a rest. But what, what I realised was like it was so cold I started to get hypothermia and from there on I would be walking in the wind on the ridge. So as I said before, that the body's you know 10 times more likely to get hypothermia. And once you start, it, once it sets in, I guess, it's very difficult to warm up. So at that point, Lakpa, uh, the Sherpa I was climbing with, he realised, you know, how cold I was and he was talking to me. I wasn't able to answer him in, you know, a, a sentence because, you know, my my the hypothermia was affecting my brain as well. And he just said to me, look, you either put oxygen on because you carried an emergency bottle and you go up or you go down. And so the, there was really no decision for me because, you know, that's not what I was there to do. So I just said, oh, let's go down. Um, and I turned back and turned around back to the camp. Ellie Pepper is our guest. She's on a mission to climb uh, 14 peaks without 14 of the world's highest mountains without supplementary oxygen. She has already done two. You're listening to Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan on RNZ National. 26 minutes past 10 it is on Nine to Noon. This has been a dream of yours for something like 15 years, I think, to climb these uh, 14 peaks and to do them before July 2026. But there's another part to the story, Ellie, um, which is... Um, midlife um, physiological, biological changes for a woman uh, but also a change that was quite extreme for you um, for someone who yeah. can climb these mountains without oxygen put up with all the um, mental and physical toll of that could you share a little bit more of your experience of menopause which really almost brought everything in, in the business to a, to a halt yeah, I didn't think I would be able to climb again, to be honest. So when I was uh, 40, I'm 48 now, when I was 46, I stopped taking the combined pill. And two weeks later, menopause hit me like an avalanche of severe symptoms. Now, I didn't even know what was happening to me, to be honest. And, and the thing I want to sort of point out here is that when doctors do their training, they spend around four hours in all their years of training on menopause. So 
when I went to the doctor to find out what was uh, wrong with me, <laughs> because I was uh, waking up uh, with insomnia in the night, dripping in sweat, uh, de- I was depressed, I had brain fog, I would look at a photo of a cute dog, I would cry, I was like so sensitive, um, I had aching joints, like I, I, it was very difficult, even rock climbing, uh, all these things were, were going on. And when I went to the doctor, the doctor didn't really know what to do. The doctor did diagnose we, me, I guess, with menopause. Uh, and I was put on a treatment of HRT, but that treatment didn't really work so it took me a little while to finally find a doctor through this uh, website called Wellfem here in Australia where Dr Kelly Teagle has uh, trained uh, a lot of doctors to specialize in in menopause and menopause treatment that I was able to find a doctor that you know took took this whole thing seriously and and then prescribed the right medication that worked for me, which is uh, HRT, uh, like a estrogen gel and a progesterone tablet. And it changed my life. It changed my life. I have many months of depression, uh, anxiety, you know, these terrible symptoms, thinking I wasn't ever going to climb again. And then after about a month of being on that medication, my whole world started to change. All of the big symptoms went away. Now, after a year, I've been on it for around almost two years now, but after a year, what I realized was all of these symptoms had started to creep in a lot earlier that I didn't really know were part of the menopause, even when I was on the combined pill and, and the, these sneaky little symptoms, you know, that things like uh, now I realize like in my training that I was having difficulty recovering and that was going on for a while in my also my with my diet you know I was having to eat like a specific amount of grams of protein and all this kind of stuff to have the right energy and now I don't have to worry so much about about that and yeah so in terms of the brain fog and things like that as well like I realized that had been going on for a while too uh so yeah so after taking this medication for over a year I feel my body is 10 years younger and that's why I'm able to take on this project the hardest project of my life now it is hard it's a lot of peaks in a short time and each of them carries their risks I know that that for all mountaineers it is about planning it is about planning and it is about good decision making at critical times. But 
what do you what in the end is driving you to put yourself through this and to take those risks yeah i think the there's a there's there's a i don't just have one why so i would say like my biggest driving force is the fact that i know i can do it and so that's what drives me to be honest I want to do whatever it takes to achieve the goal that is in the sport that's my passion. So that that's one thing. And and it, and it means that I have to be the best version of myself in every way to achieve it. And that's an amazing journey in itself overcoming challenges, overcoming my limiting beliefs, uh, all those types of things, having to step up uh, in myself. So that's one thing. The, the other reason is to inspire other people that they can also achieve things in their life that they want to achieve, you know, and in terms of, you know, menopausal women, if I can take on this project, which is such a, yeah, a difficult challenge, especially with our oxygen, I want to inspire them that they can climb their own Everest too, no matter what those challenges are, that they can climb their own mountains. Ellie, thank you. Ellie Pepper, Mountaineer. 